I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. What makes one grape variety better than another? This is a good question to keep in mind as we watch the dynamic wine world change over the next several decades. It's also a question to keep an open mind about. I imagine we all have our own personal hierarchy of grape varieties, and for centuries, the notion that one grape variety is supreme to another has shaped entire economies. People with political power, kings in particular, and more recently presidents, have long pushed their personal drinking preferences on the regions under their control. Louis XIV, he really liked Burgundy. Thomas Jefferson imported Bordeaux to the Americas. The Sars were into bubbly champagne. And Philip the Bold hated Gamay so much that he banished it because he found it to be evil. Gamay has a different place on my hierarchy of favorite grape varieties. And in much of the EU today, American grape material is forbidden. Well, just the scion part of it. Over the centuries, grape hierarchies have been determined and driven by differing agendas. The grower's perspective often differs from the drinker's perspective. In particular, when a region is dominated by large buyers who purchase fruit from smaller growers, the way those growers are paid will affect which grape varieties become prominent. For instance, if they're paid by weight, growers will likely opt for higher-yielding varieties. But if they're paid by sugar content, better-ripening grapes may become more popular, as opposed to higher-acid grapes. This was the story for Graciano in Rioja, a high-acid grape which is making a resurgence today. In estate wineries, the easier varieties to grow might become the most popular, especially in regions that deal with tough climates. Grape varieties that give you a consistent yield year-in and year-out and grape varieties that are resistant to your local climate issues and local pests will usually end up being more popular. Growers are also looking at rootstocks. Unless we're vineyard managers, we're probably not paying enough attention to rootstocks. These are definitely some genetic species and varieties that are experiencing a heavy surge of propagation because they're better on limestone or better at controlling vigor. So from the rootstock angle, some varieties are more useful on certain terroirs than others, and thus they experience some popularity. 
And there's also the cultural angle. Regional definition and regional expectations for consumers drive some of grape variety popularity. Many wine regions set up boards to govern the quality of their region. This has become increasingly popular since the early 1900s. There are often some stipulations about allowable grape varieties. Some of the regional wine boards limit what their region can produce so that their region's products have a clear identity to the larger global market. But sometimes there are ways around these limitations. There are ways of growing disavowed grape varieties. For instance, you can declassify the grapes to the larger region. Like if you're growing Cabernet Franc in Savignier, you can't call it Savignier. You have to declassify to Anjou Rouge. Then of course, there's what's probably the biggest force of all in determining grape varieties, the market. If a particular grape variety is getting twice the price of all others, or more, it's a no-brainer that slowly the region will migrate to the most lucrative grape. All of these factors influence regional regulating boards who, when creating the rules, they need to strike a balance between a grape variety's ability to grow successfully in the region, the economic success in the market, uh, the cultural importance of the grape, and the elusive and subjective notion of quality. So regulating boards are working hard to negotiate all of these things. But what happens when things get extremely specific? The limitations on who can make what, where, when, at which sugar levels, and what alcohol, and from which specific genetic grape material, it's becoming more and more narrow. In a way, this is good because this allows us to focus in on regional expectations. The less varied a region's products are, the more we know what to expect from that region. But several centuries from now, will limiting wine regions to a few grape varieties have taken its toll? By not allowing natural selection and a healthy amount of biodiversity, are we setting ourselves up for monoculture failure? And it's here that we enter into the paradox. On one hand, we need to govern quality. But sometimes, in the act of governing, we reduce quality. By choosing certain grape varieties, you're automatically dismissing others, some that might have a heavy presence in the region, or that theoretically could be great for the region. And sometimes governing boards, in their promotion of quality, allow grapes, but paint them pejoratively as workhorses or as quaffable wines of the region, while giving other grapes all the glory. The narrative is often repeated until it becomes absorbed into the fabric of culture. But what happens when a wine producer diverges from the narrative? What happens when someone makes great wine from the grape variety that is supposed to be the region's simple wine? What will you think of an amazing Aligote, a sublime Cote de Rhone, a really good Super Tuscan? How do you fit awesome and serious Dolcetto into the narrative of Piedmonte wine? Wines like these beg for a fluid notion of grape variety and quality. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who makes us rethink our hierarchy of grape varieties with exceptional and serious wines from a grape that many people consider quotidian. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country 
and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Nicolette de Boca of San Ferrolo in Doliani on the show. Hello, how are you? Oh, fine, thank you. Very nice to see you. So you actually used to be in the fashion business. Uh, yes, yes, I used to because uh, when I started working, I, I started with university. I was um, studying philosophy, but at a certain point I needed to earn my money and uh, I started to work in the press office of Giorgio Armani. Uh, my mother and my father were journalists. Uh, she used to write about fashion, and so she introduced me in the fashion world, and I started to work there. And uh, then, uh, after some time, I, I started to be interested in, uh, in something that was not so close to my parents' job. Uh, and I started studying the history of contemporary fashion, how uh, Italian Pretaporte uh, developed, and was very interesting. And then I started to work for a, a book, a fashion book. So the approach was very, very interesting and very historical. And from that moment on, I tried to understand, even if I continued working in press offices, I tried to understand exactly in which way. Designers from Walter Albini until uh, Romeo Gigli were thinking about clothes and in which way this different way of thinking were affecting the way they projected and designed the clothes. And then I started to teach in a fashion school and I was in love with the job, but unfortunately the time was not uh, the right time for um, beginning with a fashion museum also in Italy. And so year after year, I, I got uh, di uh, disaffectionate. You were less interested. <laughs> yes, uh, a little bit less interested because I saw that the only idea that were going on were, are you press or are you buyer? Are you press or are you buyer? No idea that you can study fashion and you can be interested in it and have a museum like Victoria and Albert or uh, the Tokyo Museum. Nothing. So I gave up and I changed completely my job. Well, what did you decide to do? At that time, I was married with my ex-husband and he was coming from outside the city. He couldn't stand to stay in the city. He is a painter. And so we were married in Barolo. Franca Mascarello, the wife of Bartolo, married us. And we decided to try to find a, a small house there just to uh, stay away from Milan, stay away from the city. 
and uh, slowly I fell in love with the vineyards. It has always been something that was in my life because my father used to bring uh, me there when he was going back twice a year to buy wines. Uh, he was friend uh, of uh, all the traditionalist winemaker, Pira, Mascarello, Sobrero, Rinaldi, and was uh, always an amazing experience because um, you enter the house, the houses were very humble, very simple, and they first offered you a coffee, for example, and then they took out uh, from cabinet, two very simple glasses. And then they said, okay, wait, I'm going in the cellar. And they used to come back with these incredible bottles. You open the bottle, they open the bottle, pour the wine, and Im immediately we were in another world. No small room with coffee anymore. It was a, an incredible symphony of um, aromas and... Uh, It was like opening the door in a fairy tale. You open the door and you are <laughs> in Narnia. It's in another world. And and then you go. We went when we used to go away with the with the bottles. Close the door. Everything disappeared. So this idea of uh, the magic that you can feel when you discover something that you're are not expecting uh, that it's not introduced uh, with a big tasting room or uh, all the things that we know now uh, uh, should be done for marketing better the wines. Uh, it's the way I still think about the wine that experience le uh, left me. And how was it that your dad was familiar with those producers? What was the connection? The connection was that uh, he was a partisan Uh, during the Second World War, and they were uh, in the mountains in Cuneo. At, at a certain point, uh, the winter was, was very hard, uh, and they didn't have anything to eat in the mountains. Uh, and for, for this reason, and also for a political reason, they came down uh, in the Lange. And there is this wonderful uh, story uh, told by my father of this uh, traversata, traverse of, from uh, Valgrana, To Lange, they did it all in one night. It was uh, in the middle, uh, middle of the winter, so ice, snow, and they could not even just they slept just one hour because the, during the night was the best time to cross the plain. And then they arrived and was like, oh, l'abbondanza! They could eat uh, even if the, it, it was war. In the cascine, you can find eggs. Uh, Tayaring, <laughs> it was magic for them. They had just uh, eaten castagne sec for ages. And uh, so they, f they were in close relationship with the people that were living there. They were uh, very supportive. And uh, the wine producer had the, the cellars and they used to hide the partisan in the cellars. And he, my father remembers, uh, uh, used to remember that uh, at a certain point he was uh, in the father of uh, Alden Giovanni Conterno, Giacomo. Uh, his father used to have an osteria uh, with a cellar. And uh, one night it seemed that the Germans were arriving. And so he said, 
okay, we cannot leave the wine in the hands of the German people. We go down and we drink everything before they arrive. <laughs> so it was this uh, close relationship with the partisan and trying to help them. It was a great feeling. And, and they stayed in contact after the war until, they, until my father was alive. And so basically it was a connection that he had for the rest of his life. Yes. Those war years and the people he'd met who had helped him out with shelter. Yes, of course. And sometimes those were also vigneron, like people who had cellars because they could hide them. Yes, the... yes. Especially vigneron. And and uh, he used to remember with Bartolo Mascarello and said, do you remember when we were frightened by the Germans? Now they are our first clients. <laughs> they come here. It's a, a second invasion, but now it's Pacific, and they buy a lot of wines. But uh, Martelo used to say, but I still feel that I, I'm a little bit afraid because I have the memory. When I hear the, the German voices, uh, this way of speaking, I, I remember. So did you end up meeting Bartolo when you were younger? Yes, yes, yes. And what was that like? Was he walking at that time? Yes, not not uh, a lot. He already stayed at home, but he was moving around the house. Um, I, I didn't have the chance to meet his father, uh, the father of uh, Bartolo, which was a, a great man. Mm. He was involved with the Socialist Party, which for our area is uh, it's quite incredible. A big culture. He was um, had a lot of magazines and, and books uh, that no one could expect from uh, Vigneron. And so your dad introduced you to the region and you sort of reclaimed that introduction later in your life. You came back to the place. Yes. And what was your first step when you decided you wanted to live in the country in Alange? I never decided. I just fell inside it. <laughs> Because we, we started uh, renting a house in Barolo, the Chabot that Bartolo has. And then uh, um, a guy that was working at the time was working with, for him, uh, Alessandro Fantino, became a close friend. We were almost of the same age. And uh, he started to bring me and my husband around and to show us uh, this is a place where I would like to live. Uh, look, uh, what a beautiful vineyard. And, and uh, um, step by step, we fell in love with this wonderful house, which is San Ferreiro, because San Ferreiro is on top of the hill. You can see all the mountains. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. He, he brought us there thinking that he would like to live there, but... <laughs> we bought the house. And so, and he said, okay, you have the vineyard, uh, don't cut it now. You try to work it for one year, and if you like it, you go on. If you don't like it, you just take it away. And he helped us the first year, the first harvest, we made the wine in his uh, cellar in Monforte. And uh, I could not uh, <laughs> get back go back. I mean, it's my life now. But originally it was an idea of like a retreat from city life, but then it became that you were making wine. Yes. And I think that uh, this is um, much more interesting because you can really live uh, the life of the place. I was inside the life of Dogliani, talking with other people about the weather, the wine, uh, just 
stay there a couple of days. And then this is a kind of job that you cannot do a couple of days. Because in the, the first year after um, we started, we tried to stay in Milano and have the vineyard at the same time. But uh, the weather uh, <laughs> doesn't care if I am there uh, Saturday and Sunday or not. <laughs> Maybe we plan to do some jobs, uh, some works on Saturday and Sunday and it rained. And then that kind of, the same things should be done in the week. So we had to stay there Monday and Tuesday. And from that moment, I started to understand uh, that while in the city you have uh, the power uh, almost on everything. I mean, you don't care if it rains, if it's sun, if it's hot, if it's cold, because you can... Uh, work until four o'clock in the night if you want you can you are the, the the padre eterno the god of your own life there you had to something bigger than you that decides and then you have to follow and in a way this changed completely my life because uh, i don't like to be god <laughs> so uh, it was a pressure that I could not stand anymore. Instead, uh, having to follow the nature rules uh, brings you back into your place and says, okay, you can do a lot, but at a certain point, you can stop. Uh, my neighbor always says, weather is uh, the only thing that we cannot uh, buy or command or rule. Sort of the opposite of fashion. <laughs> Completely. Completely, yes. And how old were you when that happened, when that change happened? 28, 29. You could start a whole new life. There was still time. See, si. <laughs> yes. And so the cellar man at Bartolo helped you out, Alessandro Fantino, in terms of making wine, because I assume that that was kind of a new thing for you. He presented us the thing as very simple, like uh, making a, a good roast beef. If you have a good piece of meat, you put it in the oven. <laughs> uh, if you know exactly, the, you have an idea of the time, and that's it. So if you have the right grapes, you crush it, the montage, and pumping over, and that's it. It's going to make everything on its own. And it's true. <laughs> uh, okay, then after you can make, uh, you can have a lot of makeup uh, on the wine, you can control the wine, you can have projects on the wine related to the market. Uh, but I was running away from that kind of life and I didn't want to enter this world with that mentality. I need to do something completely different. That was, uh, I am a um, uh, Angelo Necessario, uh, there is a, a, a beautiful poem, I think it's Wallace Stevens, that says, uh, it, it feels like you're a, an angel, that it's communicating from uh, between people and the earth, people and the earth, and you're just in between, you don't have to do anything special, just be faithful to what you have in your hands. So it was a religious experience for you, in a way, right? <laughs> in a way. I mean, that sounds like a priest, right? Okay. The intermediary between the... Yes, but um, it's an a unreligious religion. Yeah. Because I don't want to 
that you can feel that uh, it was something mystic uh, or uh, that I pray or uh, it's just uh, that there are um, what we called also spirituale, metafisico, all the categories of things that you cannot see that are invisible. And I think that biodynamic has a lot, of to, uh, a lot to do with this. This doesn't mean that it, things don't exist just because you can measure them, or you cannot uh, see them, or they are not behaving like physical forces that you can measure. This was the idea. And so you started with Dolcetto then, because you're in Doliani? Exactly, because uh, when I got there, as Alessandro told me, if you try to keep the vines... The vines were Dolcetto. So I started with Dolcetto and uh, what I discovered uh, is that I was making a Dolcetto that was completely different from all the others. Not because I wanted to, but because it happened. Uh, in the beginning, it was really very hard because we had uh, San Ferreolo is in a place called Valdiba, which has a very strong uh, character soils and very tannic wines. And I started uh, almost immediately to work with my neighbor. He has this wonderful vineyard that is very, very old, uh, 78 years old. And on Rupestris Dulo, gives uh, uh, grapes that are very with very small berries, and the wine is concentrated, very, very tannic. And at the beginning, no, nobody could understand this wine because they said, oh, but this is too tannic. Uh, uh, what is this? I cannot recognize Dolcetto. Where is the fruit of Dolcetto? Where? And so I, I had two uh, different choices, get back and, and uh, find someone that can teach me how to make up, <laughs> to give makeup uh, to my dolcetto, or try to explore this tannic part that is, is there. And, and so uh, I thought that probably uh, it was the kind of the market that the wine uh, has had until that moment that led uh, people to make a simpler wine. Except from in Audi, in Dogliani, we don't have uh, big families. In Barolo, uh, you had uh, Marchesa, Falletti, Montezemolo, people that were uh, in relationship with the uh, courts, uh, not only in Italy, but also in Europe. They can promote the wines uh, in a certain way with certain people. Uh, Vittorio Emanuele II, the king of Italy, had uh, this property in uh, Grinzane with Cavour. Uh, Vittorio Emanuele was uh, what became after uh, Fontana Fredda, Mirafiori. Uh, so all the eyes were <laughs> on the Nebbiolo. Uh, we didn't have any families. So this changed a lot because when you study the history of wine, you can see that the wine can be good, of course, should be good, but it's not uh, the only thing that you should have. It's important that you are in a place where you can uh, travel easily, uh, be on a commercial route or um, other things. So, But I thought that not for this reason, uh, Dolcetto was just a simple everyday wine, because when you, you taste it, 
it's not like that. It has much more inside uh, all the antochani, the, the, the polyphenoli. It's complex. As a grape, it's complex. Yes. And it's complex also to work with it. Very complex because it needs a lot of care in the vineyard and after in the cellar. And you have a wine that is very delicate, but at the same time has this strength in, uh, in tannins and polyphenols, which you, can, you don't know how to manage because on one side, delicacy, on the other side, strength. And so I started uh, to, to try. At, at the time, I was also friend with uh, uh, Beppe Rinaldi, and I didn't have a, a good cellar. I was working in a very small room. And he said, why don't you bring the wine uh, in my cellar? I have a uh, big wood. You can keep it there until you're going to have a bigger cellar and buy your own uh, botti. And I did that. And and was incredible uh, how the wine changed, uh, staying in a, a little bit more in wood, oxygenating. And so I could push a little bit more on the maceration. Uh, and pushing and pu pushing on the uh, maceration, pushing a little bit on aging, I got to the point where I am, uh, and I released the wine eight years after the harvest. Because it's interesting, because Dolcetto has a lot of color, right? But Nebbiolo doesn't, really. Yes. And so it's almost like I could see in the region why it might be hard to approach Dolcetto if you're thinking about Nebbiolo. Because, you know, if the standard is for one kind of grape and it has a different kind of characteristic that's so obvious, which is color, I could see where people might get confused trying to develop what we would call like a protocol or a playbook for that other grape. Yes. It gets color really fast. And then what happens with Dolcetto? Like, it, you know, in the fermenting must, immediately it has color. So then what happens next? Uh, what um, classical... Uh producer do is try to avoid uh, the the tannic part uh, we have important big seeds so they should be perfectly ripe because our tannin comes from uh, its wood tannin instead nebbiolo uh, has uh, the tannic part is on the skin and you can if you if you try to eat the the the, the uva uh, you can feel immediately the, the tannins in, in uh, it's not a, a pleasure eating a bunch of nebbiolo. Instead, uh, dolcetto, uh, it's also very good as a um, like grape a table you grape. Can, yes, table grape. In our area, usually they take a plateau and they put the best grapes and they keep it for un until, um, for example, uh, Christmas time and you eat them with uh, cheese, sheep and goat cheese. So uh, it, it's a completely different approach. It, you, if you taste uh, dolcetto, it's just sweetness because you don't have the acidity of Barbera and you don't have the tannic part of uh, Nebbiolo and, it, and you feel the sweetness. Probably the name was also for this reason because uh, as you taste it, this is the immediate. The sweetness of the grape but not yes. the wine. Because a lot of times when people think exactly, of the, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, but after, after when you get the color, the second thing is while the alcohol is going up, it's a solvent, solvente, sure, uh, and it starts to extract tannins. So for a long time, the main uh, 
problem was how can we get the color and the stability of the color and at the same time avoid tannic part of the seeds and so roto maceratori trying to extract the seeds from the bottom and have the wine the wine that is more round and soft and also in in that situation i i decided that i didn't want to uh, go against the grape and maybe was like no we go through it sometimes when you are on a beach you have big waves uh, if you try to avoid them or if you run away, maybe they catch you. Uh, sometimes you have to just throw yourself in the middle to get out from the other side. And this was uh, like, this is a feeling I have always <laughs> in my life with all the problems. So I, I, I thought maybe we should go through these tannins, get them all and then wait. Okay, you have to wait a lot. Mm, uh, what I, I really want to say is that uh, uh, there is no blame absolutely for what other people are doing because I can understand perfectly that now with uh, thinking about what is paid, a bottle of Dolcetto, it's a miracle that people are still making it. Waiting eight years for selling a bottle, it's, uh, it's something that it's... Uh, uh, unbelievable it's out I, I could afford it because probably I was helped by my father my life in the beginning was on, in another place I could wait but I understand that other people cannot as Pequenino says your your decision your road the road you choose it's interesting but it's not you cannot share with anybody else because uh, people in this place in Dogliani we, we need to make money in, because the, the estates are going to close if they wait, have to wait for so long and in fact you purchased parcels of vineyard from people who no longer wanted to be there right <laughs> yes yes this is another story this is because probably I'm not powerful enough uh, and I don't speak Piemontese <laughs> So when you go to a certain place, if you want to buy a piece of land, the first thing is uh, to be able to speak Piemontese. Or you need someone that can uh, be in between you and the, the person who is... And then you have to be very... It's, it's really an art. It's a really an art. You have to go there and take the coffee and then get back and talk all the day and talk about other things... Uh, uh, and then ogni uh, tanto you say, and what about the vineyard? Oh no, we, and then we start again talking about other things, so days and days and days. It's a, it really an art, and there are people that are incredibly good in doing this. And me was just like uh, trying to have a good pieces that maybe were difficult to reach, you didn't have the road, they were too small, nobody cared in the middle of the woods. <laughs> and so I, I put together this puzzle uh, that is made by eight different places, eight different pieces. Some are very small, 2,000 meters, not even an hectare. So, but I like this because I can experiment different places. Times are different, so when I start harvesting in one place, uh, 
uh, in the other maybe it's early so I have the time to do all the giro and to and also with the with the jobs that are made in spring and summer you have more time to so there's a lot of diversity between the parcels then yes yes there is a lot of diversity uh, i have uh, parcels all on the right bank you say of the river uh, which means that we are between uh, dogliani and monforte and serralunga a big difference is also on the other side, because on the other side, uh, uh, on the left side, at a certain point, we are in the Formazione di Lequia, uh, which is the same of Serra Lunga. You have uh, uh, limestone, yellow sand, uh, gives life to uh, wines that are very powerful. And on the other side, it's uh, Formazione di Murazzano. The wines are more gentle, uh, more delicate. And also, this is another reason, because if you want to make a, a, maybe a wine that ages, you have to have the, the land that allows you to do that. It's a handicap on one side because you cannot have this fruity, immediate wine. But on the other side, it can help you to have a... But it's not you. It's not me. Uh, that uh, I didn't decide anything. I just tried to understand what I had in my hands. This is the main difference, but even on the right bank uh, of Rea, every uh, hill, it's different. Santa Lucia, San Luigi, Val di Ba, and San Martino Pianezzo, it's different, the soil, it's different, the climate, uh, it's different, uh, the winds are different, uh, and uh, within the same area, you have difference between uh, the white soil maybe on the top of the hill and the red one that comes from another geological period that it's like bowls of uh, uh, that deposit there with this red soil. In, in fact, the old farmers were used to have, for example, you have a vineyard, uh, Dolcetto, 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 and then at a certain point started plants of Barbera. Why? Because the soil changed, they knew it, and they knew that putting the dolcetto in that red soil would have meant uh, falling uh, cascula, um, means that when the, the, the grapes are almost ripe, they fall down. Oh, okay, they fall off the vine. Yes, uh, and so they put the barbera, maybe 10 vines of barbera. Now you're not allowed to do that anymore because uh, you have to show that the vineyard is 100% dolcetto. And if it's not 100% dolcetto, uh, you cannot have the DOCG, which is crazy because we are putting so many rules uh, that we are taking away the responsibility and the moral responsibility from the vineyard to put in stupid rules that doesn't mean anything. So if I have to plant now, okay, I can maybe I can play more on the rootstock than they used to be able to do before but it's it's a, a wise thing it's not a trick to put uh, some petit verdot in your vineyards uh, but now it's only uh, only like that we are submerged by uh, useless and, and and stupid rules so you have a lot of different elevation for the parcels as well between, yes variation between how yes, high yes, they are yes. 
We go from 350 in Santa Lucia, in uh, the place is called Cascina Toscana, <laughs> but it's not Tuscany, it's Piemonte. And we go up to 500 meters to San, San Ferreolo. What do you find when you vinify those parcels? What are the characteristics that those different zones, different soils and different elevations give? Okay, I can tell you my experience, uh, but I don't want to say that this is the total experience of the era. Maybe the um, producer that have uh, their, their estate in Santa Lucia feels can have a different feeling, but my impression is that in, in Santa Lucia you have soils that are more fertile and you have wines that have a high alcohol degree ripens earlier, wonderful dolcetto, but they're not meant for aging very, very long. When I, I bought La Toscana in Santa Lucia, it was exactly because I need some roundness in the wines of Valdiba. So I, I said, okay, this can help. Uh, in uh, Austria, where I, which is San Luigi, but it's a special part of San Luigi, here, uh, also, um, I don't want to express myself for uh, everybody, but uh, I have um, it's a, a more sandy area, so the wines are less alcoholic, uh, but very elegant. And the vineyard is super reliable. Uh, it's not very high. It's a little bit down on the river. It's a cool place. It's the last vineyard that I harvest, also because I know that even if I keep the, the grapes there for ages, they are not going to ammuffire, rot, uh, because it's uh, a dry soil, uh, wonderful. Uh, so very reliable and uh, a good thing. Uh, and instead, okay, Valdiba is the place where I have most of the vineyards. And uh, as I told you before, the, the character is... Uh, it's high, so maybe the alcohol uh, level is not so high, even if in the end it's, it's high. I mean, when you make the, the measures, you cannot predict that it's going to develop all this alcohol, but it, it, it does. I have always uh, lower degrees on, on Babo, for example, than what I find in, in, in the bottle in the end. But this strong tannic character that helps me to age the wine and more than help me oblige me that i have to <laughs> in a way and so you do make multiple bottlings yes i start fermenting the separate tanks or I, uh, talking about san ferreolo it's wooden uh, teeny uh, and then i have to put them together but i can i know how the wine is because we start fermenting for a couple of years i i kept them uh, separate because Alessandro Masnaghetti, who was making his uh, uh, maps, Map. yeah, ma uh, was interested to see the differences. Because uh, um, you have to understand better the area. You have to feel how is the wine pure without. And after I put everything together. But now you do more co-ferments? Uh, yes, completely. Because uh, the idea is uh, I, I, that I really acquired some pieces uh, of land to have uh, a certain harmonia in the wine. It's the same thing that Bartolo used to say. I, I can make uh, the crew. He used to say, I can make the crew 
and um, divide my clients and make them argue because they want this or that and maybe have difficulties to fill the, the botte or I can try to make my Barolo, uh, which is the sum of all the terroir I have. And I decided for the second, this is what he, he used to say. I mean, the crew, the crew idea, it's very complex because it's a political and economical idea, first of all, not a wine idea. The systematic idea of the crew that started, uh, for example, in Bordeaux, was starting from how much that bottle was paid. And this used to put a level which was not have nothing to do with the capability of a winemaker or the producer, but on this ability to sell the wine or the merchant ability to sell the wine. And uh, now we have this idea that Grand Cru is the best. Uh, and I think that it's a, it's a dangerous idea. I mean, we should uh, think about it not as uh, only truth, but as a specific uh, economic and political point of view. You think it's more about branding and sales than about actual hierarchy? Uh, yes. I think that uh, you can have uh, good qualities in each piece of land. I mean, okay, not, not in the plain <laughs> where you can uh, make patate. <laughs> But uh, at a certain point, you can have qualities uh, in uh, places where you have uh, maybe less alcohol degrees, uh, less power. So the problem for you is that someone comes in and says, this kind of wine is the best, and the parcels that produce this kind of wine are the best parcels, because there's a, you appreciate multiple kinds of wine. Yes. That's the issue, right? Yes. Yes. For me, yes. For me, is. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's a female point of view. I mean, uh, it's like, uh, oh, this is your, your, your uh, these are your uh, children. Okay, this is intelligent and this is stupid. And uh, no, uh, this is good in mathematics and this is a great chef. And this uh, one, uh, it's uh, like Donald Duck uh, stays on the bed all the day, but he's, uh, it's okay, like that. He's uh, making funny jokes. Everyone has uh, a specific role, uh, and we are all valuable. The problem is to find the person that can understand what is your talent. Uh, and I, I, I cannot try to make a long aging wine from certain vineyards, and I cannot try to make uh, immediate wine from others. Uh, this is uh, useless. And, and, and our jobs, I think, is try to find the best and try to get out the best from single piece of land. After that, of course, um, if I am, have a south exposition, I will, I will have more grapes. They will ripen uh, easier. Uh, but this is, again, a, an economical thing. But I feel like a lot of times when people say, in, in the wine world, when people say it, it was a good vintage, a lot of times what they're saying is it was easier to farm. You know, <laughs> like the perspective is from the farmer. Yes. You know. The perspective, I, I, if I have to think about the vintages, I, I think about, as a farmer, I think about the grapes. And then I get amazed by the wines. Because uh, from vintages that I 
hated because of the difficulties of harvesting came out wonderful wines from vintages that were uh, incredibly boring uh, because it was so easy to harvest boring wines uh, it's it's difficult really for me it's completely unpredictable but maybe it's because i don't have uh, enough experience but you do age the wines for quite a long time so i feel like you more than a lot of producers would have some sense of how they mature in the cellar in the bottle see but they're still evolving yeah <laughs> so well, it's hopefully. difficult right. so it's it's difficult and they go like this i mean uh, as you know at certain points you think okay this is the last year i have to drink everything because it's not going on anymore and then 2 years after it's still at the top again and then it's alive i mean uh because it's a marriage, it's a love marriage between the time, uh, the evolution of the wine, which is not like uh, Mathematica, uh, a line that goes straight up or straight down. What is really important, what I, I, I realized is that uh, making this job gets you back to the circular time, which is the time of nature. We are not talking about molto perpetuo di Newton. Uh, it's a good thing, but what is done by different uh, uh, elements. You have the physics part, uh, uh, the materia, and, and, and okay, <laughs> the molto perpetuo law, and, uh, and so on. But then other things, and uh, you have this circular time, and the wine goes up and down and up and down, and it's not like straight line predictable. Which for you mirrors the idea of physical seasons. Yes. Where the flowers come up and then the winter brings them down. And of course. That cycle. If, if you look at the vine in the winter, you would never say it's going to burst of life after two months. And it's the same vine, the same plant. I mean, but it's com two completely different stati. So if, if you focus only on one moment and you think you can take it forever like that, uh, you're completely out of nature. Uh, no way. This idea of metamorphosis, metamorphosis, we cannot appreciate enough how important it is. It means that the vine or every plant or everybody has already inside uh, a story that it should be taken out and developed and then at a certain point, uh, you go back in your personal winter and then you find your personal spring again. And now instead we have to be always happy, always uh, sad, always uh, always something. To be predictable, uh, I'm sorry to say it's, uh, it's also an economic point of view. Because people can know what kind of brand they're buying and they know what to expect. Yes, and, and uh, if you are predictable, I can sell you that kind of pills or I can sell you this. Or It's an economical uh, point of view. So you started in 92, 1992. Yes, was, 92. What did you start with at that time? I had uh, only a small vineyard on the north side. Uh, when I bought the house, the south side uh, was my neighbor vineyard. I got there mainly for the house and going away from Milano, so I didn't care a lot about uh, where the vineyard was. 
when I started, I realized that I had uh, the north part, but uh, was a very good north. <laughs> I mean, where uh, where we have dolcetti is a very thin soil. We say magro, but to say that which is is not very fertile soil with uh, small pieces of gesso, chalk, and around these small pieces, um, you have the, um, the soil which is very uh, calcareous. So it's it's good, even if it's... And, and it's on the top of the hill, so being north was not uh, so problematic. But we are 500 meters, so it's quite an uh, important height. And I started from there, and then I started to get uh, small pieces of land uh, here and there when someone could not work anymore. Uh, there is nothing uh, so sad uh, as uh, an abandoned vineyard. I was reading something that my father wrote, but was something that I I was walking with him one day, and we got inside a, a small uh, road, and we found a, a, an abandoned vineyard. It's like a, a cemetery because you have all the poles falling down. Uh, the, the vines themselves are like graves, uh, <laughs> signs that life was there and it's not anymore. Uh, so I, every, every time someone was going to give up, uh, I was running there and trying to take the vineyard. So do you think that the region has gotten warmer over the 90s and 2000s? Yes. yes. And do you think that some of those exposures you had, which weren't maybe heavy sun exposures, actually kind of maybe helped you out over yes, that period? Yes, oh, of okay. course. Of course. Uh, what, what we do uh, in, in San Ferreiro is that we don't have uh, A vineyards, B vineyards, C vineyards. We behave in the same way in every place. And then at a certain point of the season, you start to see where are you going to have the best wine for San Ferreolo and the freshest wine for Valdibar. Which are bottlings that you make? Which vineyard will give the grape to for go in a certain uh, wine or in the other? But it's not decided before. It's not that we have this, that vineyard is a vine the best vineyard and from there, which is another myth. Like uh, San Ferrero should be done only with this vineyard that is uh, 100 year old. No, mm, San Ferrero is done with the grapes that have given me the best condition to have this wine, and maybe that year it's too hot to have the the, the grapes coming from south, and I keep the one coming from southeast. I have to decide at the moment. It's, it, I think it's like uh, cooking. I mean, you can write the recipes, but then it's all experience because uh, you can you have to cook your pasta for ten minutes. But maybe uh, we have a different kind of water. We are in the mountains or we are in the sea. Ch things changes. You have to be there and taste. You have a big uh, big rules, but it, you have to check them continuously. So are there other people in the region that helped you understand the process that you wanted to finally fine-tune? Were there people that helped you understand how to bring out some of the characters that you were looking for? There are a lot of people that uh, were inspiring uh, 
sometimes also for things that I didn't want to, <laughs> uh, which is good, which is very helpful. Or people that are inspiring for a certain part uh, of, for example, a very, very important person for me is Orlando Pecchinino, because I think he's one of the best connoisseur of Dolcetto, even if my wines are completely different from his wines. Another wise man on uh, Dolcetto, uh, and he's making uh, a Dolcetti that I would like to do, <laughs> Dogliani, is uh, Paolo Boschis. And then uh, maybe the most is inspiring for me, uh, it's um, part some the old Barolo producer, it's uh, Flavio Rodolo, which has a very, very strong character in wines. And his wines... I remember Alessandro Masnaghetti, once uh, he, he met me and told me something about my wines that was the same thing that I found in Rodolo wines. He said, Nicoletta, what are you making with your wines? Because, yes, I know that this is Barbera and this is Dolcetto, and, but they have something that really ties them together. Uh, the variety is not so important anymore. Uh, what do you think it is? You think our yeast or? And I thought, oh my god, I've done it! I'm I'm making Rodolo wines <laughs> because the 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 feeling I have I have with this wine is even if he makes Cabernet, he has a very small piece of Cabernet, uh, Nebbiolo, Barbera. The first thing that comes out it's the character of Rodolo. No, no polished wines, no makeup wines, uh, and every time it's an experience, uh, a wonderful experience. Sometimes you have uh, maybe this is not very politically correct, but sometimes you have uh, some wine lists that are uh, predictable. It's you, you, you see the wines, the name of the wines, and you know exactly what are you going to drink because you know that people. Uh, it's right also like that. It's a commercial thing, but they need to go toward their clients and said, you will find the wine that you are thinking you will find. But I, as, as a producer, I don't want to find the wine I, I, may, I think I will find. I want to be surprised. And uh, with Flavio, this happens. Probably not only with him. There are a lot of friends that are making wonderful wines. But he's very near to my my area, so he makes good dolcetto. Yes. Did you ever speak with him about that, like the process? <laughs> no, he's very uh, yes, but he is not going to say a lot. It's like with Alessandro Fantino, you just crush it and you ferments. Uh, but sometimes I think that maybe it's just uh, this making it so simple is. Uh, I don't want to tell you everything. It's like a chef that tells you something, but, uh, but not everything. And I don't think this is because uh, they want to, to trick you, but it's just because they, they don't know how it happens. And if I have to tell people how I do, uh, probably I will behave in the same way. There are n no tricks and no special things. Uh, but maybe there are special things that you think at that, at that moment, but you cannot share with other people because you don't know. It's, it's tinto, like when 
If you are Maradona, you are not thinking with uh, your brain, you're thinking with your feet. They just go and uh, you don't know how and why and you cannot say, I did this for this reason and probably that. Uh, or uh, other times, uh, maybe I try to talk with him, but uh, it's just something that you can, the answers are not direct, uh, that you have to interpret them. And what have you found to be important over time when it came to Dolcero as a grape variety? What turned out to be a fundamental in terms of making it? Very difficult because uh, some people think, say that you have to be very careful about wrecking the wine. But after, and I do it, uh, I am careful, but I discovered, for example, with that in biodynamic in the last years, uh, probably using less sulfur. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can keep the wine on the lees for a very long time. When I started, I used to wreck. The first wrecking was after two or three days. Separate the wine uh, from the sol semi-solid part. And then another one after one week. Uh, and this obsession of, uh, for cleaning the wine was um, because the, uh, it really was a stinking. But uh, in, starting from uh, 2009-10, I didn't have any problems with the dolcetto uh, anymore. And I don't know why. I think about biodynamic, about the way we behave in the vineyard, but maybe something else. I, I really believe uh, biodynamic is important, uh, but I don't want to <laughs> have followers. <laughs> I'm not a, a predicatore. So it's just a, a supposition. I mean, maybe that. So this is not important anymore. Uh, what is important is... Uh, to give oxygen to the wine because it needs it. We, we made a research with the um, Instituto Sperimentale di Norgia di Asti uh, more than 10 years ago, and they discovered we are, the dolcetto has this very strong quantity of polyphenoli and uh, tannins. Uh, and uh, amazingly, the, the professor who was following the, this research said, Looking from uh, the data, you should not bottle the dolcetto before four or five years. And <laughs> everybody was amazed because we used to bottle it in uh, six months after. Uh, and, and this probably is the problem. What, what I discovered with, uh, with natural wines is uh, if you want to make natural wines that are in a way clean and perfect, you need to have time. That's the only problem. Uh, you don't have to force uh, the time that each single grape has, because Dolcetto is completely different from Barbera and from Nebbiolo. Uh, they behave completely differently. So in, in the cellar, maybe you are, can be worried for a tartaric deposit in, uh, in Dolcetto, but you will not have to worry uh, uh, about it in, in, in Nebbiolo. So, and even in the vineyard, you cannot behave in the same way with all varieties. 
So do you think that there's historic examples of Dolce Shadow that weren't bottled for five or six years? Or do you think that we didn't know that because it was often blended with other grape varieties from the region historically? Because uh, it's a poor region. People don't have uh, the possibility to keep the wine. A lot of uh, grapes were just sold uh, to Osterie on the plain of Cuneo and uh, the beginning of the mountains. People came with carry uh, and buy the grapes and bring the grapes away and they made their own wine. So there was no tradition of uh, keeping the wine. And on the other side, of course, this is um, something that was said looking at the papers about polyphenol and tochani, but there is another great and important character of dolcetto, which is... Uh, the fruit part, uh, which is so appealing, and that you have uh, when it's young. Because if you age it, uh, you have different kind of fruits, uh, uh, more spezie, but uh, that immediate fruit that can be cherry in some situation, violet in others, uh, disappear. So to have that, you have to bottle the wine when it's young. But then it's uh, like life. If you want that, you have to give up with other things. If you want other things. In my character, was more like I wanted to be sure that the wine was stable and that uh, this was an experience I had uh, at my uh, home with my father on the Dolcetti Quinto Chionetti, also when his son was working, uh, Andrea, uh, the wine was completely reliable in every situation. Uh, you can leave it and open after some times. And so when I got there, I also asked Quinto uh, advices because that wine was... Um, and uh, Andrea, the son of Quinto, uh, uh, has already started exploring uh, a dolcetto that was aged for some years. But unfortunately, he died, so um, he could not go on with the with, with the experiments. And now he's a son and the nephew of uh, Quinto, Nicola Chionetti, uh, entered uh, the estate in two years ago, and he's starting again to explore. So I have a colleague that it's uh, going on uh, in this direction too. But it still seems like a fairly handful of people who are taking Dolcetto to a level that we might think, oh, this could approach something great, you know. Yes. Never forget about uh, the, the the situation. Uh, the families, uh, the lack of families. Uh, um, uh, on one side, this is a, it's, it's a good thing because in our area, you can still find uh, uh, estates that are... Uh, not only wineries, they have some hazelnuts, they have animals, cows, uh, sheep. Uh, so you can still see a um, landscape that is variegated and different. It's not like the monocultura you have in, in Barolo. I think now in Barolo, planting a, a tomato or, or a potato, it's a nightmare because you, if you think about the money you paid, the soil, the land, that potato or that tomato should cost you 1,000 euro. 
uh, instead in our area it's still possible to have a real agriculture and this is a good thing but on the other side uh, it's agriculture not uh, the mentality of a winery and few people are growing it's, I think my generation except from Einaudi but it's a, it's another thing Einaudi shines on its own and uh, they started a long long time ago bottling the wine they were the first all the other experiments started in the 70s, 80s, so much later. What is happening now, uh, I can understand that Nebbiolo is the most important grape. Uh, it's, it's one of the few grapes that can age uh, transforming themselves so incredibly. The terziarizzazione is making, there are probably three or four grapes in the world that can do it. And uh, thanks to the Nebbiolo, we are a, a region aside, uh, but uh, it's still important. We are near and we, uh, we benefit, in, in a way, of the presence of Nebbiolo. But there is also a contro, because uh, Nebbiolo Lange, Lange Nebbiolo, is taking the place of Dolcetto. Because you have the, the word Nebbiolo, it's easy. It's a lightweight wine, it's elegant, no color, you can have it for lunch and feel like uh, uh, I cannot have the Ferrari, but I have a sport car that seems a Ferrari. So Lange Nebbiolo is taking our place, people are taking away the wine, the vineyards, and uh, there are producers from the air of Barolo, that are starting to buy the land in Dogliani for a very low price, just to put Lange Nebbiolo. The air of Barolo, it's incredibly expensive. It's stuck with vineyards. No way of planting other varieties because you don't get the money that you're uh, need to buy the land. So they will use uh, the air around as uh, tanks of grapes uh, they cannot plant anymore. And we will become the land of uh, Nebbiolo Lange or uh, Barbera. And I think in a uh, few years uh, there will be very few producers that are, will still be working on, uh, on Dogliani in a certain way. So uh, the proximity has helped you, but also hurt you in a way. Yes, but it's probably this is uh, life or this is uh, history. At the same time, you do make a little bit of Barbera and a little bit of Nebbiolo. It's not your focus, but you make some. And yes. So when you make them, what do you find those characteristics to be versus the Dolcetto in the area? Well, uh, sometimes I, 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 it's di even difficult for me to, <laughs> to distinguish them after a, a little bit of time because uh, the Barbera that uh, we can have in Dogliani, it's not very acid. It's completely different from Asti and is not as, as in, in, in the era of Barolo. We, ha we have more fruity, round and gentle Barberas. In fact, I put a little bit of Nebbiolo inside mine because I want uh, more structure, more backbone in the wine. And uh, the Nebbioli, uh, well, the Nebbioli that we can have in our area, 
they are good, but uh, it's not uh, the, the they're not as powerful as the one uh, in in the air of uh, Barolo. And very tannic wines, anyway. Oh, really? Yes. What uh, happens is that probably it's the soil of uh, at least San Luigi and uh, Valdibar gives very, very tannic wines. In- interesting because uh, they have character. And, and they can, I think that they can age a little bit anyway. So do you think that the reason Dolcetto is the signature grape of Dogliani has to do with the fact that you can't make Appalachian Barolo there? Or do you think that it has to do with the soil and climate conditions of the region? That maybe those tannic tendencies of the soil help with Dolcetto? Or? No, no. Uh, a characteristic of the, of the area, of the region, because we have two things that are very important for Dolcetto. We have, uh, that maybe are the, the same, um, and you can see it in uh, warm years, hot years. Hot vintages. 2003, for example, the Dolcetti of the Alba area, disaster. Because uh, Dolcetto is a kind of grape that can block the ripening if it's cold, but even if it's too hot. It's very delicate, the stem, and uh, the, the, the plant has big leaves. It goes easily under stress, uh, heat stress. And uh, uh, when the plant is stressed, uh, the first thing it does, it's uh, cut uh, the communication with grapes so not to lose water and uh, nutrients. Uh. And for the same reason, uh, another thing that is really helpful for us is that we are open toward the mountains. We, we can have the fresh breezes coming from the mountains. Instead, Nebbiolo, uh, in the Barolo area, but usually, in generally, uh, needs uh, heat. Uh, the best Barolo position are uh, not on the top of the hill. It needs a uh, medium fertility soil, so the um, very unfertile soil of the top of the hills is not is the best position for Nebbiolo. And it needs to be protected from the wind. So it's more like a bowl, <laughs> a kind of bowl. And uh, the Barolo area in, in Monforte, for example, starts when uh, there is a ridge that protects uh, all the hills that are uh, behind it. In front, we have Dogliani open to the wind, and then the highest ridge, and then back, we have the, the Barolo area. Two different uh, needs, the Nebbiolo and Dolcetto. So um, the idea of planting in Dogliani was, uh, was not only an idea, was the fact that the grape should ripe uh, better. So what do you think that the curve is? Like, what is the possibility for Dolcetto? Is it possible to have a 20-year-old Dolcetto or is it a 10-year-old or what is the... I'm still experimenting. <laughs> the oldest, and, and consider also the fact that I have old bottles, but that they were not done as I do them now. Not the same long maceration in, in wood, no the same... Uh, uh, suspension of the lees, uh, batonnage, uh, not the same. So I think that we have uh, more chance now to have longer wi- wines that live longer. But 
uh, I've tasted, for example, an 80, I don't know, I cannot remember exactly if it was an 82 or 85 uh, Dogliani from Chionetti. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's, uh, it has a different, of, of course, if you think about the way of uh, aging that Nebbiolo has, uh, mm, no way. But uh, uh, n not a lot of wine can age in that way. Uh, we have wonderful wine that uh, are appreciated when they are old, but they, they age gently, just uh, changing a little bit the aromatic side in more underwood notes. Sure, like notes of the, the forest. Yes, exactly. So uh, we're not obliged to be... To behave like a like an abiolo, and in in that direction, I think that Dogliani can can do good things, uh, very interesting things. The father of Nicoletta Bocca was a partisan for Italy, and she unlikely became a partisan for Dolcetto. Thank you very much for being <laughs> here today. Thank you, thank you, Nicoletta Bocca of Sanfarolo in Dogliani in Piemonte. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.